This is the Uncovered Dish Christian Leadership Podcast. The podcast that uncovers stories, equips leaders, and changes the world. We're your hosts, Catherine Jordan-Latham. And James Lee. As a pastor, you're the de facto staff manager of the church. But with the staff comes the inevitability of having to fire someone. In a church, that's a really difficult situation. For example, Mary, the organist of 30 years, doesn't like the changing needs of the community. She doesn't play Christian contemporary music. And in committee meetings, she actively rallies against those decisions or Barry, the administrative assistant who never gets the bulletin done, but he's the grandson of a major church benefactor. (laughs) We all know situations like this. There is an emotional investment in churches that is absent in other spheres, which ties into our spiritualities and theologies. Christians seem to be more sensitive to how losing a job can impact an employee and their families and the church's relational structures as well. So many churches hold on to ineffective employees or are really, really bad at hiring and firing. Today on the podcast, Navigating Difficult Staff. And with us, you've heard her voice already, is our guest host, uh, Reverend Kathleen Jordan-Latham of Monmouth Grace United Methodist Church in Eatontown, New Jersey. And with us today on the podcast uh, as our guest is the Reverend Susan Beaumont. She is a consultant, author, and coach, and spiritual director. She has consulted with over 100 congregations and denominational bodies, and she's known for her groundbreaking work in the leadership dynamics of large congregations. Susan, we're so thankful that you are here. Thanks, James. It's great to be here with both you and Catherine today. So, Susan, I know that I've sat through a few of your presentations that we've had here in Greater New Jersey, and you always have this great wealth of information, I feel like. You you share so much of your own self, and you share so much of the research that you have. So, I guess the first question we want to know is, did you ever have to fire somebody? Oh, painfully, <laughs> yes. My, my earliest experiences of firing came um, in my days in corporate America. I uh, was a manager of a human resource function for a major diversified retailer and was responsible for overseeing 850 employees in warehouse and staff locations, working with managers who were firing people and um, and even prior to that had two employees on my own that I had to um, let go. And it's just never a feel-good situation. It's painful when you have to be the person who's delivering the message that someone's employment relationship is ending. Right. I feel like there, although still, it's especially harder in a church, right? Why do you think employment relationships are so complicated in churches? Well, you know, when I first started doing this work in congregations, I naively thought an organization is an organization is an organization. And if I've learned these skills in corporate America, I can do this in the world of church and I can teach pastors how to do this. Mm-hmm. And there are a couple of things about the church context that make it truly unique and challenging in this regard. And the, the first challenging way of thinking about this is that congregations are one of the few organizations out there where the primary stakeholders who sit on the board of the organization are also the members of the organization 
the owners of the organization, the ones providing oversight to the staff team, and the ones being led by the staff. I mean, mm. so it, so the interrelated nature of all those relationships Interesting. Yeah. fundamentally makes it difficult from the beginning. But the, but the second thing um, that I think we don't talk about often enough is that uh, an employment relationship is fundamentally different in nature than the kind of covenantal relationship that we, the stakeholders of the congregation, have with one another. Mm. Uh, congregations are covenantal communities. And what we mean when we say about that is that we're daily trying to mirror the relationship that we believe that God has with us humankind. And we're trying to mirror that relationship with one another within our community. So yeah, covenantal relationships and employment relationships. What are the difference between the two? Can you just clarify? And what are the objectives of those two relationships? How are they different? How are the outcomes different of those two relationships? So these covenantal relationships that we have with one another, they're based in a promise. They're not contractual in nature. An employment relationship has at the core of it a utilitarian contract about it. An employment relationship stays healthy and productive when both parties in the relationship feel that there is a usefulness or utility to it. So that if I'm the employee, I feel like there are things I'm getting out of this relationship that I value. I'm getting uh, paid, hopefully, in some sense that feels fair and equitable to me. And I have the opportunity to grow and develop as a person and bring my skill set and my giftedness into a context that I value. And if I'm the employer, the utility that I get is I am receiving from that someone with a specific skill set that meets a need that I have in a moment. Mm -hmm. And uh, employment continues to be healthy as long as we foster the utility in the relationship. When the, and when the utility is not working quite right, uh, because one party or the other is no longer delivering what's expected by the other party, then in most employment relationships, we come together and we try to mediate that difference. And if we determine that there's no utility left in the relationship, we expect our employment relationships to end. So you can see how those two kinds of relationships are fundamentally different just because it would be counter in, an, in a covenantal relationship for us to be saying, well, I'm sorry, there's no utility here anymore. We're going to move you out of relationship. So how does a pastor or a leader of an organization navigate this difficult messiness that seems to be between this covenant and employment that exists within these contexts? How are they supposed to, you know, handle yeah. this? Well, you know, I think one of the first things that we have to do is to get clear with our employees about Mm. what kind of relationship they're having with the church. And so, for example, when we get a member who steps into an employment relationship, one of the most important things we can do is to make sure they're clear in their mind that for our employees, uh, most of the time we can navigate this covenant employment thing pretty well. When we have employees who are doing what they're supposed to be doing, this just doesn't usually rise up. We don't have to deal with it. But if we're clear with all of our staff that their primary relationship with the church is their employment relationship. So you would say that in difficult situations, the employment relationship always trumps the covenantal relationship? It has to. 
you know, um, now in an ideological sense, mm, right, <laughs> uh, you know, right. we can talk <laughs> a little bit later about, well, when the rubber hits the road, what's really going on here. But in, in the purest sense, we have to acknowledge that our church budget for most of us, 50 to 60 percent, maybe even more of our operating budget goes to payroll related expenses. Mm. We have our staff and we have our buildings. That's what we have to do ministry with. And we can't get confused by using those payroll dollars to take care of members or people who are not functioning well by saying, oh, well, we're the church. We just have to do this. This is what this is the resource we have to engage in ministry and pursue our mission. So, you know, we have to first and foremost get straight as supervisors in our own heads that this is my role. At this moment in time, maybe I have to take off my pastor hat and I have to put on my supervisor hat and understand which relationship I'm primarily engaging here. And I and my employees have to be clear with me as well. I may even have to say to them sometimes, right now I'm speaking to you as your employer, not as your pastor, um, so that they understand wow. this is the kind of conversation that we're having. Now, um, in addition to that, we just have to get a lot better as employers in congregational settings to be able to get really clear about a set of expectations as clear as we can with people about this is what's required of you in in your role as an employee here and then we need to manage um, a cycle of feedback with people so they know where they stand relative to our expectations now how do those uh dynamics differ when there's a family dynamic present, right? You know, a lot of us, especially within our church context, have our young adults are working in the church and the parents are worshiping there or vice versa or something like that. So how does that change these kind of possibilities right, that, that we've been talking about? That happens all the time in the church too. <laughs> well, I'm not sure that it entirely changes the dynamic in terms of how we try to manage the employment situation, but we have to get real and say sometimes the interrelated covenantal family dynamic things uh, ha- are, are exerting so much influence on the employment situation that we can't be naive about that. The, you know, the the parent of a youth or a youth leader that feels that they can insert themselves into the employment relationship because they have opinions about that. Or <laughs> the organist who has a huge following, even though they're not doing their job well, there's a core group of people that are just devoted to that person. And every time you try to step in and provide a supervisory lens, you get your hand slapped uh, for having done that. And those situations are really tricky to negotiate. And so they require a lot of political savviness on the part of the leader to say, I need to make sure that I have a core group of healthy people standing with me as we interpret these things. And I'm making sure that I have enough, frankly, influence capital in the congregation to to take yeah. a hard step. You know, if, if I'm a if I'm brand new to this congregation and nobody knows me or trusts me yet. I probably can't start out by firing the organist. I probably have to, you know, get uh, get a lot of influence capital built up by doing some other things first before I can come in and start working on this um, difficult situation with the congregation. Yeah, it's so important to really set those expectations right, and it's hard to terminate someone if those expectations were never communicated to begin with. So I definitely see the importance there. Uh, so, what are some tips you'd say when it comes to hiring? 
or rehiring, right? When you terminate someone, you're probably looking to hire someone new to fill that position. So when it comes to rehiring staff, what are some specific tips? Well, the basic things that make for good hiring are the same things that you use all the way through performance management and even into termination, which is it all comes back to do we have a, do we have a cohesive set of expectations so that we can hire right? For me, all of good supervision, which I like to talk about is performance management. That's really what we're doing. We're managing the performance of employees. All of it is rooted around having clarity in these expectations, which are laid out in a, in a good job description. And it requires the distinction between being able to name the essential functions of the job, which are the duties and tasks. This is what you're going to be doing on a day-to-day basis to satisfy my expectations of having performed the job. A set of core competencies, which describe the behavioral attributes, the abilities and skills of the person that is doing the essential functions. You know, whatever it is for this particular role, we name those as clearly as we can and we describe those. And to hire well means getting clarity about those things so that the people who are invested in this role, not only the supervisor, but other members of the staff team, other lay leaders within the congregation, that together we have developed clarity about this is what we expect. And then once we have clarity about that, it's much, much easier to actually craft interview questions that get at those things rather than everybody going through an interview process where what we're reacting to is whether we liked the person or not, whether they <laughs> seemed to fit us. Oh, so man. you kind of touched about it, uh, on about it, but, uh, you know, what makes up a good perf- performance management system? You know, what mm-hmm. do we have to actually do to make this a good system? And what should not make its way into the performance <laughs> management system, yeah. too, right? Right. So some of the foundational things is having a good policy book for mm. our staff. So a human resource policy book that um, that our staff parish relations committee um, would work together with our council or governing body to say, this is the ground rules for all of our employees. That's that's critical to get that stuff, you know, all laid out there in terms of what's a standard work week, how do our benefits work, what do we expect about the use of social media, statements about sexual harassment, safety in the workplace, equal opportunity, and all that stuff lays out in a policy book. How long should the policy book be? Because right away I'm thinking like pastors of small churches go, (laughs) what, I have to make an HR handbook as well? Like, like what? So uh, so just just to give those leaders just a little bit of a hope like how long should this policy handbook be hr well, handbook you know, be? It, it depends on your context and how complicated employment is in your context right right, right? Um, so in really sophisticated congregations that have fairly large staff teams, you know, the employment manual will be somewhere between 35 and 50 pages even of really laying out lots of different um, clarified things. In smaller congregations, there might just be really a few key things we, we decide we all need to agree on. But in general, um, you know, I would say this is not a pastor's job to write the policy statements. It Amen. belongs to lay leadership to do this <laughs> <Yay>. work. And <laughs> yes. a lot of our churches have people on our boards who have some experience with this. Mm-hmm. And if they and if you don't have people with experience, there's a lot of resources out there from other churches that do have those. And yeah. at the denominational level, examples of policy statements, you know, this is not something you have to write from scratch. You right. can kind of put it together from different things you find in different places. That's so helpful. 
But but then once that policy manual is together, then the second thing, which I've already mentioned, is every employee ought to have a job description that's unique to that role. Um, another key part of a good performance management system is that every every employee has one clear supervisor who is a member of staff, ultimately accountable to a person who's head of staff who's accountable to the council so that we create this link and chain of how accountability works and flows. What gets really confusing is when people are asked to be super expected to be supervised by a board or committee. Mm, right. That almost never works well. <laughs> um, you know, some some congregations will say, well, we don't think pastors should get distracted from their spiritual role by being in charge of the organization. So we're going to make our staff accountable to um, staff parish or accountable. We're going to make our custodial person accountable to the building and grounds committee or the property committee. Mm. Um, there's so much turnover in these roles that there's no consistency there. Mm. And there it, it becomes multivocal, which gets really confusing. Like, how is that custodial person supposed to figure out which of those voices is the voice to listen to? Mm. Yeah. And who speaks on behalf of that whole? That's, that's why having one clear supervisor who's a member of the staff team and accountable to whoever the head of staff is, which is usually the minister, and in a small congregation, the whole staff would be accountable to this to the minister, the pastor. Right. In a larger congregation, some employees might be accountable to another member of the staff team who supervises them, who's then supervised by the senior minister, right? But one clear supervisor. Um, another good part of a, perf- a good performance management system is when every member of the staff team has the opportunity for regular check-ins with whoever their supervisor is. So, and by, you know, what do I mean by regular? Well, some employees need almost daily check-in, depending on their newness to the role, how complicated their role is. Other employees need a once a week check-in with their supervisor for maybe a half an hour, uh, where they get one-on-one time to talk about what's priority for them, what's on their plate, what they're trying to figure out, what they're trying to work on, what things they're trying to problem solve around, where their supervisor helps them with that. Mm -hmm. Some employees who've been in place for a long time, are very much on the same page with their supervisor, perhaps they only need to meet one-on-one once a month. Mm -hmm, What what we don't want to do is to have a situation where a supervisor has so many direct reports to them that they can't do the rest of their job and supervise at the same time and have all these one-on-one meetings. When that starts to happen, what happens is that the supervisor, the pastor usually, kind of throws their hands up and says, I cannot marry and bury all these people, preach each week, put together a worship service, uh, run these, you know, show up at all these committee meetings and have one-on-one meetings with every member of my stat team. I just, I can't physically do it. Mm -hmm. Um, What starts to happen then is the performance management falls apart. And the pastor starts trying to use staff meetings to do feedback. And that's just not an effective way to do supervision as a group group. So these one-on-one meetings are really critical in terms of doing good performance management. You're saying that there shouldn't be too many staff that's reporting to one supervisor. How many staff would you say is a good number for one particular person to be supervising? And at one point, is it too much? I always set myself up for that question. (laughs) 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 But I would say a general rule of thumb. General rule of thumb is that Um, Most people cannot effectively supervise more than five people 
mm-hmm. in a church setting and still do the rest of their job. Right, mm-hmm. right. So when a pa- you know, and so this gets especially complicated in congregations where we're often we have these very part-time employees and that's how we're getting by and and so we find pastors who are supervising 12 13 14 people wow and it's no wonder they're frustrated they can't do good performance management yeah. when it's set up like that right right mm. I, you know i think all of this comes down to um, we have to learn these these skills that we talk about they're not um, they're not skills that anybody is born with but they're all learnable skills. They're all simple skills that in many ways are not unlike the basic human dynamic skills we use in pastoral counseling, um, in just being good stewards of the world. Um, but there's just some subtle nuances to this employment relationship thing that that takes some careful intentionality. So I get yeah, I get um, frustrated when I see pastors discouraged thinking, uh, this is not what I signed on to do. You know, I, I didn't go to seminary to do this kind of stuff. I didn't get called into ministry to, you know, to practice these kinds of skills. And so I, I would think as kind of a, a final um, exhortation to pastors, I would just want to say, this is ministry, this is the essence and the crux of ministry is how do you build a team to lead the congregation and the engagement of its mission? And, uh, you know, there's just nothing more exciting than that when it comes together and it's working well. And we all have to kind of get our heads around the fact that this kind of work, even when you have the best staff in the world, takes time and intentionality. You can have the best staff in the world, and if you don't engage in good performance management, you will turn it into a team that's not effective. So um, so I just really encourage pastors everywhere to be thinking about what is the basic assumption I'm bringing to this work? Is it drudgery to me? Is it uh, you know something that I'm just trying to minimize as much as possible? And if that's where you find yourself, I just invite you into a more grace-filled, hopeful place about what you're trying to do with employment relationships so that you bring the same richness and hope and hopeful outlook into this as you do into your preaching task, because uh, it's every bit as much important as that task is. I, that, I'm, my brain is going like this. I'm, I'm, I'm processing so much of what it is and realizing how helpful it is even within where I am and thinking about friends I've had conversations with. And this information is so helpful. And it's true. We don't get it in seminary. So thank you for stepping into that gap and making sure that that information is around for us. Well, you are welcome. And thanks for the opportunity to talk with all of you about this today. Where can pastors or church leaders go if they want to find more information about this? Yeah, there's uh, there's a well, there's a couple of places. First of all, I've co-authored a book with Gil Rundle on, on staffing and supervision. The name of the book is When Moses Meets Aaron. And the subtitle of the book is Staffing and Supervision in Large Congregations. But actually, the examples are from large congregations, but the principles apply in every size congregation. Mm. So that's a great resource. Um, on my website, susanbeaumont.com, I have probably a well over 125 different blog posts, many of them which have to do with specific supervisory challenges. So that's a great place to go look and click on and just scroll through and see, is there something in here that addresses my particular situation? Uh, I also regularly teach a two-day workshop called Stepping Up to Supervision, 
which I think Catherine mentioned having experienced some of that, but um, uh, that's really two full days devoted to unpacking the concepts that we talked about here today. And I offer that around the country. If you look on my website, you can see where I'm teaching that and sign up to take that um, someplace uh, as a way to be with colleagues and kind of fleshing out some of these things more individually. Wonderful. Thank you. Uh, so we have one last question we ask all our guests. And Susan, you are actually, I just realized this, you are the first person to return to yeah. our podcast as a, uh, for the second time. Oh, my so, goodness. So yeah. we have, we have that, asked you this well question. over a year since I was here with you. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, we have so asked I don't you remember this... what the question is. Okay. <laughs> okay, good. So maybe your answer has changed. So I'll ask again. Um, we are the Uncovered Dish podcast. Uh, we... That title comes because we are referring to the covered dish dinners that are often found in Methodist churches. And the question we ask all our guests is this. If you could have one dish, one meal for breakfast, lunch, and dinner for the rest of your life, no variations, what would that one dish be? Oh, wow. So this is literal. This is like, I'm not supposed to get. <laughs> Someone said manna from heaven and we accepted it, but we're looking for a literal answer. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Well, I would say a, a dish that just has real sustenance for me is uh, just like vegetable stew. Mm. You know, just all of the, I just love the flavor of all these different things that nourish, they come together all in one place and they are transformed. Their individual substances transform in the collective whole. So I guess I'm answering this both physically and <laughs> yeah it's very very <laughs> theological i feel like there's a sermon in there somewhere I love uh, it. <laughs> <laughs> all right susan thank you so much okay, again for being you. on the podcast again we were with reverend susan beaumont she is a consultant author and coach if you would like to find out more information you can go to her website susanbeaumont.com and we'll have all the information in the show notes as well thank you susan so much for making time to be with us we are inspired thank, thank you thank you thanks james thanks Catherine. good to see you both again. Good All to right. see you. Take care. Bye-bye. Uh-huh. Bye-bye. So, Catherine, what did you think about that conversation? Uh, I was... It's so interesting because of the church that I serve, right? Mm-hmm. Is that there's so many of that family dynamics and the first church I ever worked in had all of these family dynamics. So I see the way I responded to things, you know, years ago and I realize how I've grown within understanding my role as a pastor and as a leader. And I think that having those uh, tactile kind of structures is super helpful because we don't get that in seminary. Right, I mean, right. I, I mean, it's it's been... Yeah, when do you learn about influence capital? You I don't. really like that when she used that <laughs> word. I was like, yeah, it, that makes so much sense. Influence capital. You really need to build up just relationships. Yeah. But you think about it, right? Is that something that we at least have in greater New Jersey is that our cabinet's really focused on making sure that we take the first six months and they say to get to know your congregation. Right, right. Right. And it's hard with the first six months, including like one of the biggest services of the year, Christmas. Right. Right. But how great would it be if we really lived into that being our focus of ministry, right? Mm. Is creating those relationships and, and building those relationships and getting not just to know the key players, but getting to know all the players in our Mets. Yeah. If there's like one thing you're taking away from this conversation, what is that one thing? Uh, one thing I would take away, it takes time and time's okay. Mm. Yeah. 
How about you? I think it's definitely that the employment relationship should always trump the covenantal relationship when there's trouble. But also to hear that like they still work together, right? Right, right, So it's not just that it's just an employment or just a covenant, that there is some sort of bleeding, but the employment is the one that that trumps. I think that's more important than Mm -hmm. to say, you know, there's there's nothing right you right. know they're they're separate they're completely separate because i think we where we fail within our our church dynamic is we put that line in the sand and say it could be either or but but no it can be end they mm-hmm. can work together yeah and i guess the church will always be a very complicated place <laughs> that's also one thing i leave with mm-hmm. all right well this has been the uncovered dish christian leadership podcast we'll see you next time This podcast was produced by the United Methodist Church of Greater New Jersey at the media production studio of the Mission and Resource Center in Neptune, New Jersey. And a special thank you to our podcast ministerial intern, Paul Barnett. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to give us a five-star rating and subscribe to be up to date on the latest episodes. Till next time, take care.